Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Debating Metal. Once again, my name is Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, and my co-host is Chris Kay. We are back with episode 46, The Life and Death of Glam Metal Part 2, The Death. We're going to talk about the middle 80s and the heyday of glam metal, the pinnacle, and what eventually led to its demise. Kenneth and I will talk about the bands and albums that ruled the airwaves and what led to their eventual downfall. And we're going to cap off the episode with our big four glam metal bands, so make sure you stick around until the end. Be sure to check out the last episode to hear what our big four Motley Crue songs were. And as always, I'll bring you another dose of Rusty Metal, and Chris will give you something freshly forged. Rusty Metal is where I dive into the archives and pick a release that I think is worth giving another listen to, and Freshly Forged is where Chris lets you know about a new release that he thinks is worth listening to. Now, by chance, if you happen to miss our last episode or any of the previous ones, do yourself a favor and click subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast platform, and you'll get our latest episode every Friday, and that way you'll never miss what we had to say. And if you like what we had to say or just want to rip us a new one, send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com or message us on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter pages and give us your opinion on this or any of our other topics. Also, don't forget to check out our social media where you'll see Kenneth talk more about his Rusty Metal pick. And speaking of Rusty Metal, what do you have for us this week? All right, before I begin, let me remind everyone my criteria of how I pick Rusty Metal picks. I decided a few months ago that Rusty Metal would be, the criteria would be 20 years. It had to be at least 20 years old. Um, And I think 2000 is the cutoff at that point. So anything that's older than that is going to be considered Rusty Metal. And, And even with that, I still... Did I say 20 years or was it 25? I can't even remember what I said a couple months ago. But even with that, you know, like stuff from the middle 90s still boggles my mind that it's it qualifies for Rusty Metal. But anyway, Rusty Metal this week is, we're sticking with the, the, the sleazy glam metal stuff that we're talking about. And it's going to be Faster Pussycat with their debut album, Faster Pussycat. It came out in 1987. It was on Electra Records, so it was a, a major label album right off the bat. Uh, it was produced by Rick Browd. And for those of you who don't know, Faster Pussycat's a glam band from L.A. They were formed in 1985. Uh, The band uh, shot two videos for this album, uh, both of which got significant airplay on MTV. The videos were for the songs uh, Don't Change That Song and Bathroom Wall. So those were the big hits from that album. They also had songs uh, Babylon, Cat House, and No Room for Emotion. So all five of those songs are on side one. So side one's like awesome. I don't think I've ever heard side two (laughs) or six through ten, however you want to look at it. (laughs) But, you know, that's me. I stop after a certain point. (laughs) The band did an appearance in the movie Decline of a Western Civilization Part 2, The Metal Years. And from there, they gained a little bit larger audience. And even though that movie kind of led to a little bit technically of the decline of the metal scene, it, it was it did help them out a little bit. The original bass player for Faster Pussycat was Kelly Nichols, who we spoke about last week as being part of Sweet Pain, my rusty metal pick from last week. And 
L.A. Guns. Well, he was the original bass player, but he ended up not being able to participate because he got into a really bad motorcycle accident, broke his leg like in seven places or something like that. And it was he couldn't walk. He couldn't perform. Uh, when he was able to walk, he ended up having to use a cane for a while. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so that was that was pretty rough on him. But And he ended up losing his gig in Faster Pussycat. But he did end up getting a really good gig with L.A. Guns because they, they had a little bit more popularity and a little bit more sustainability than Faster Pussycat did. So, anyhow, that's the album. Um, it's pretty cool. Uh, Faster Pussycat's still around today as most of these glam metal bands have reunited and stuff like that. They did have a period of time where they kind of went industrial uh, and... Tammy Down, who's the singer, was just, he was really he was super gothic, but I think he's he's calmed down off of that now. I, I believe he's clean and sober now for like the last five years, so it's 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 good, and uh, the band is kind of back to its normal roots, I guess you could say that way. So check it out when you get a chance. I think it's a really cool album for those people who like glam metal and sleaze metal and all that stuff. Okay, very cool pick. All right, so this week, instead of a freshly forged pick, I wanted to bring up a an online channel on uh, on YouTube that I've been following for quite a while, and uh, that's Rock and Roll True Stories. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Kenneth, but uh, basically this guy picks out different uh, legendary stories within the, the rock and roll community and uh, kind of really goes in depth of... of you know how events happened say for instance there i watched one recently uh the song that started van halen's collapse there was one called how beavis and butthead destroyed winger's career which is really relevant to today so there's there's all these specific moments that you probably know of that you've always thought like you know i wonder why this happened well this guy goes over a lot of that stuff uh one of the ones i watched recently was billy squire's disastrous career move uh, our career killing move and that was uh his music video where he did the uh it was all in silk and oh yeah i don't I, you I, remember that I, one I, I, yeah briefly <laughs> yeah. yeah this so this seems like a really cool channel it is it's 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 covers a, like a wide breadth of of rock and metal um there's a lot of stuff with kiss um there's some really funny stuff there was a dave matthews poop incident video so i, I mean just definitely check it out it's worth watching uh the guy has has been doing this for a long time and when he first started on it it was you know a little rocky it took a little bit of time to get into the groove but but over time he's really you know coming to his own and and they i think he's got like two hundred thousand subscribers so us you know promoting it is no big deal but at the same time i think it's worth checking out and it really ties into what we talk about as well that's super cool. I, I want to know what what song was that led to Van Halen's downfall. <laughs> yeah, that that's pretty cool. I, I definitely got to check that out because that sounds super interesting to me. Yeah, I think you'll find like you'll be really interested in it. Awesome, awesome. All right, well that brings us to our main topic for today, which is part two of the life and death of glam metal, and this is the death of, and we're gonna kind of go over. Um, you know, the heyday, the, the middle 80s, the late 80s, you know, so basically from 85 on into the 90s and really what led to the downfall. A lot of people think it was one thing, but in reality, it may be more than that. And we may touch upon that tonight. We're going to try to at least. So, um, Chris, 
uh, why don't you go ahead and start it off and, and let's talk about some of the bands that you uh, have on your list and we'll, we'll go into some more detail. All right, so some of these actually come. We we didn't li- we didn't talk about them, even though they come earlier in the the scope of things. But they weren't really part of that first wave per se. They would join in as you know bands that maybe played in a different genre earlier, and then adapted to the the glam scene. So the the first one I want to talk about is is Scorpions. Now, Scorpions released Blackout in 1982, but they had been around since 1965. And if you've listened to those early releases, they're vastly different than what you're hearing here. So Blackout was a huge hit. I mean, it, it really established or reestablished them in a different direction of where they were going. Uh, but not so much that they didn't still feel like Scorpions. No. How did you feel about it? No One Like You was the first song I ever heard from the Scorpions. And like mm-hmm. I immediately fell in love with that song because it's such a killer riff. Uh, I mean, the song just starts, boom, with the drum snap of the snare and goes into a guitar solo. <laughs> it's like... Oh, and that guitar solo is amazing. Yeah, and, and, and you know, Matias jabs in that guitar solo is just outstanding. The one thing that I wanted to say about that is, is, is not it wasn't even just the Scorpions in, in, in per se. It was a lot of those what we what we've talked about in the past. A lot of those legacy bands uh, for Scorpions, they had they they were coming off a high from Love Drive just three years earlier, and they released Animal Magnetism, kind of kept the, the momentum going, and then this album came out. And this album basically put them on the map as far as far as the United States was concerned. I mean, yeah, there was a lot of people who knew about the Uli John Roth era, but as far as nationally and and mainstreamish, if you will, the video for No One Like You playing on MTV really got them a lot of exposure, which then led into their next album, which we'll call it Love at First Thing, you know, and that just that blew open the doors for the Scorpions. Oh yeah, it completely changed the scope because they went from being a European band that had American fans to being a band that was established in America, and that was a that was a big thing. You know, to to make it big in America changes the the scope of of and and not to to just kind of like toot America's horn because it, it's not even about that. Breaking America was important. I mean, we'll talk about White Snake later and and how important that David Coverdale felt it was to break America. And I mean, even in the movie Spinal Tap, they covered, you know, breaking America was important. Well, for all the European bands, you know, especially English bands and, and for, for, for the most part, a lot of German bands too. I mean, yeah, you want to be popular in your own country, but when you think about how vast and large the United States is when it comes to music, you definitely, if you break there, you you're you're huge, and you know you could be a, a quote unquote platinum seller in Germany, but you're probably only selling, you know, a hundred thousand copies, maybe even less. I don't know what the what the qualifications are. You know, you if you're gold or platinum in in the UK, you're talking fifty thousand, a hundred thousand, or a hundred fifty, a hundred thousand, hundred fifty. I can't remember. But the United States, you got to sell half a million records to get gold, and a million to to get platinum. So there's mm-hmm. a significant amount of people that are then listening to your music. That's awesome. So yeah, for a lot of these bands, the goal was break America. Oh yeah. Um 
But on the other hand, you had a band like Kiss, who started in 1973, had a huge career. But but the change that was happening with their original members exiting the band uh, led to them kind of needing to change things up. And and the savvy businessmen that, that Gene and Paul are recognized what was going on, recognized the change, and they moved into kind of a glam era with uh, Lick It Up. They took the makeup on. So the guys that had become or had been one of the influences on the this genre of music were themselves influenced on you know we need to make a change to uh, maintain our popularity and they had their finger on the pulse of what was going on so with Vinnie Vincent in the band and Eric Carr it wasn't quite the same band as as it was and they were more able to adapt into a new style of music my my problem with Kiss at this point in time, and, and it's more about hindsight when I think about it, is is and I, I we we talked about it before when we spoke about Kiss in the past. They were reactionary as much as is they had their finger on the pulse. It was the the finger was coming in after everybody had already basically gotten going. You know, it was yeah, and, th- and that's what I really meant when, with what I was saying was they recognized that things were changing around them, and if they didn't, right, you know, change with it, they weren't going to make it right. And, and so, you know, so they definitely were reactionary, but at the same time, they did it at the right time. They they didn't do it in 1990. You know, ten years yeah. ten years after the, the scene had already kind of exploded and went away, they were in the middle of it. So, you know, mm-hmm. don't, don't, let's not take that away from them in that regards. Yeah. 1983 is still in the infancy exactly. of, of, of the glam era. So it, it, they, it was after, you know, Motley Crue had released their, their, their first album, et cetera. It was around the time they were releasing their second album. Right. So, and, and Kiss at this point, um, 83, I mean, they put three albums out in a row, 83's Lick It Up, 84's um, Animalize and 85's Asylum. And all those, you know, it, it was glamier and glamier and glamier. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the hair got bigger and bigger and bigger again. <laughs> you know? Yes. Because they had cut their hair in, 1990, in 1980 for the Elder album. And it just, you know, it got bigger again. And Eric Carr's hair was huge. It, it, it rivaled Paul's afro from 1976. Eric Carr's hair was the same size as the rest of him. <laughs> And it's funny because he did a uh, he did a cartoon that he I think they were called Rock Idols or something like that, and, and his character was about you know, all hair with tiny little legs, <laughs> so something like that. I can't I can't remember exactly what it was, but it, to me, the big turning point um, that we're getting to at this point now is 1985. Everything really really was hitting full stride in 1985. You know, the Scorpions had already released Love at First Sting and they were coming off of that huge tour. They released Worldwide Live as a live album, which, you know, live albums eventually became, you know, something that wasn't necessarily that big. You know, they they, they weren't as as they as as great as they were in the seventies. But at this time, 85 a lot of live albums started coming out and it was people were clamoring for them and eventually they faded away. Worldwide Live from the Scorpions, Iron Maidens, Live After Death, all these came out in 85. So it, 
85 was a big turning point for, for glam metal and for metal in general. And as I, let me touch upon what I was saying before about these uh, legacy bands, Kiss, as we mentioned, Scorpions, as we mentioned, you know, Ace Freely went solo at this point and he's released uh, some solo albums or, or Freely's Comet um, came out, I think uh, that came out in 86, you know, or 87, I can't remember, you know, so um, Ozzy Osbourne, The Ultimate Sin was huge at this point. Um, he was, he was looking, you know, to, to, to jump on that bandwagon himself, you know, and even Judas Priest with, with Turbo. I mean, that was totally glam, you know? Oh yeah. So these bands weren't known for being a glammy kind of band, but Judas Priest, you know, they're the defenders of metal and they were, you know, screaming for vengeance is a far cry. You know, it's a lot harder than Turbo. Turbo was definitely their way of saying, we want to be part of this too. And before we go on, there's one band I want to mention that although they didn't succumb to the 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 trappings of glam metal, they kind of skirted around it. And that was ACDC. They released Fly on the Wall in 1985. And if you listen to any ACDC album that they have put out, this one stands out significantly different sounding than every ACDC album. The drums are. I, I wouldn't. I don't want to use the word bombastic because they're not, but they're definitely a little bit more punchy. Uh, the snare drum is. is just, I don't. It can't say the term booms, but it, it it definitely has a different sound than any of their other albums. The music very similar to regular ACDC, but the, the production just was part of that whole thing of, of this whole scene that was going on. And they put out videos. They were they were just like all the other bands, but luckily enough for them, they stuck true to their their blues, hard rock, blues based music, and and kind of moved back into that by the end of the nineties. But they they almost fell for it. Yeah, I mean, back to, to what I was saying before. I mean, the other bands that were trying to to break America. I mean, White Snake was one of the biggest mm-hmm. ones where. Um, Actually, at one point, David Coverdale had very talented musicians and said, this is not working. This is not working with the sound that I want to to break America and really change to what what Americans were doing with Slide It In. Uh, even re- re-recorded parts of it when coming over to America. But it wasn't until 1987 with the White Snake album that that all changed. And I wouldn't even say that per se they're they're in a glam band but they were definitely influenced by the glam movement david coverdale had the big hair you know it was it was all he had all the 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 trappings of what would make a a album that fit in with the glam movement oh absolutely i mean slide it in the difference between slide it in and white snake is significant uh, be- mm-hmm. between you know when you listen to the original UK version which was extremely dry and uh, you can hear the instruments clear as day um, the the remix that came out in the United States and and no, no one knew it was a remix but basically it was just the, the American release or the American version of it was was so much um, better in terms of the mix in terms of the sound um, and then it, it was it was a hard rock album it and it but it 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 kicked ass and then he goes in 
and and has John Sykes as his guitar player, and he says, "You and me are going to make this album," which ended up being uh, White Snake, now known as 1987. And he fired. I mean, he had the. I mean, the guys that are on the album are the other dudes that played on. Some of them are the ones that played on Slide It In, but then he just fired them all, and he said, "You know what? We're going to do this." And I'm gonna break America. And he he picked up Rudy Sarzo. He picked up Vivian Campbell when John Sykes left. Uh, and he had Adrian Vandenberg, and and Tommy Aldridge on drums. I mean, that's a hell of a band. And he still has Tommy on drums. That album in '87 kicked some major ass, and it definitely was a glam album. Here I go again. To is still played on the radio constantly. You know, all the time, yeah. So it's 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 definitely you know they they didn't shy away. I mean, he was he wanted to make it, he made it, and then he came out with another album after that, Slip of the Tongue, which was just as glammy as as 1987, and he's ridden that coattail to to this day. So other bands that really kind of filled in, uh, you know, the spots in between what what. The, the major band that I want to talk about next. Uh, you had Wasp coming out with uh, their album Wasp in 1984. You know, more shock rock, but definitely had some glam elements, you know, the makeup and, and the sound, uh, but but a little bit harsher sound than, than a lot of the other glam bands. And then Great White. And Great White had been around for, for a while and really adapted to this sound. Uh, from what they originally started out as, so they they kind of filled in the ranks um, with the, with the glam movement. But then this next one is really one of the biggest hits at the time, and one one of the breakouts. Even though I'm not a huge fan myself, I definitely recognize their impact on glam, and that's Poison. Right, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Poison when when that album came out, it it took a lot. I, I mean, I studied that album, and I'm like, are these guys or are these girls? <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I'm not trying. Yeah, they took it to the next level. They they took that album cover to the next level. I mean, obviously it was airbrushed, and you know, for, for what that was worth in 1986. But man, it was really difficult to tell what these four guys on the cover who they were. But you put the album on, and it's it's excellent. For, for what it's worth at that time, it was perfect. So so what really did did well for the band was when they when they had that that ballad on the album, I Won't Forget You. That song helped bring them to the next level, you know, especially with the with the big single that they had Talk Dirty to Me on that album. So between Talk Dirty to Me keeping the rockers involved and I won't forget you getting the chicks involved. The album did really well. The next album just went over the top, you know, with uh, Open Up and Say Ah. That album had nothing but a good time on it. And then Every Rose Has Its Thorn just, I mean, they went way over the top. And so that, they, they were riding high for those two, three, four years. I mean, it kept going all the way up to 1990, but still, that those that first album and then that second album, Open Up and Say Ah, I mean, they were riding it at that point. Yeah. So, so to me, poison is like the Motley crew of the second wave. You know, they're, they're the standout act of the second wave. Now, what I don't like about the second wave is that there was more of a focus on these bands. They had, they had heard the architecture, 
you know, of what glam was. And they had taken that and the direction that it was going and more focused on the ballads and the softer aspect of it, where the early bands had a little bit harder edge coming out of punk and, and uh, hard rock. So they, there was, there was a different perspective of what their music was supposed to be. You can blame Motley Crue for that. (laughs) Oh yeah. Motley Crue's, took it from a Motley Crue took it from a punk rock aspect and then recognized what was commercially successful and then started doing all the huge power ballads. And then the power ballads became an essential part of the architecture of, of what these bands were becoming. So the next few that came out, Cinderella winger, um, warrant there, there were, there was more focus on that kind of stuff and that, that change in the sound and all the, the existing bands were doing the same. So you, you know, you could see that, you know, this second wave was a little different than the first wave. Oh, definitely. The the first wave was, you know, f- for lack of a proper term, was a lot more hard rock than mm-hmm. the second wave. And the second wave definitely was more, quote unquote, mainstream. And definitely by then the formula was, you know, like for Cinderella, they got 10 songs on that first album, but only one of them is a ballad. And that's Nobody's Fool. And that one ballad drove the the, the record sales. Yeah, they had a great single with um, Shake Me, but that wasn't going to make them a, a quadruple platinum album. Nobody's Fool, on the other hand, did. And that, you know, that's what made that album such a huge hit. Same thing with Poison, you know, uh, Talk Dirty to Me and Cry Tough. Cry Tough was a weak single, but they put it out because I think the record company was like, we're not going to, you know, shoot our wad on the first shot. So they put Cry Tough, they got some action going with that, which is funny because they had that song, I Want Action on that album. I Want Action. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then they, then they put out Talk Dirty to Me and that song, uh, broke on MTV and all of a sudden Poison was hot and then they released I Won't Forget You you know with the with the the live concert touring footage you know and, and all that in the slow motion editing and all that so it, it took that album to the next level and made it a big seller for them so yeah you know you got songs or bands that were playing a lot more harder rock I would say from 80 to, to 85 and it's slowly building up and you mentioned wasp before they were definitely a, a harder edged and they definitely had a different kind of show and they weren't supposed to be glam metal but when you look at the album inside the electric circus and then you listen to it you can say yeah they they totally went and dropped whatever they did in 1984 and and then Come 1986, 87, it was all glam. I mean, you got Blackie Lawless. You you really can't tell, but he's naked and painted in the the leopard or tiger stripes on the front cover. Um, and then it, it was slowly developing, that, moving that way because on the last command, he's on the cover with black spandex. You know, the, yeah. The, the even though they may still have the 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 the. Uh, the saw blades it they eventually went away from that and they they became a straight glam band i mean johnny rod was their bass player after after roddy uh randy piper roddy after randy piper left and blackie went back to play guitar they got johnny rod to play bass and that dude you know blonde hair coming off of king cobra he was blonde hair poofed out all the way 
you know, it, it was oh, yeah. definitely glam. So I agree with you. It was a, there was a, the, the two waves are significantly different in terms of sound, you know, but at that point, the record companies were in control and they said, you can have a hard rock album, but you got to give me this, this ballad. Yeah. So I mentioned yesterday, uh, kicks and we, we talked about them. They were never a, a huge band, but they were one of those that latched onto that idea of let's put out the ballad. And that drove the, the popularity because they actually hit number 11 on the Billboard Hot 100 because of that. You know, that's that's what I was saying on on the previous episode when we were, we were talking about it. Um, sometimes these bands that were not major hits uh, were able to kind of like follow that formula and say, you know, let, let's put out a ballad. And they, they caught on the wave at the time. And that was the way that they became successful, even though, you know, they weren't always commercially successful. They weren't, didn't always have the popularity. But but recognizing that, that you know, we've talked about Bob Halligan Jr. before. Mm-hmm. He wrote songs for Judas Priest. Well, he wrote their hit, uh, Don't Close Your Eyes. So, you know, there it wasn't to like, you know, there was there was something more there. It's just these bands were finding what was popular and worked and... You know that was their way to latch on to the popularity. That's interesting. I didn't know that Bob Halligan Jr. had written uh, "Don't Close Your Eyes" for Kicks. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a good song, but you know, it's definitely weaker than some of the other ballad songs out there. You know, like similar to Faster. You know, when I mentioned Faster Pussycat earlier, their second album, "Wake Me When It's Over," had that song "House of Pain." That's a it's a deep song. But it's not the strongest ballad in the world. I mean, it falls into that category. Uh, it, it, it's a, it's, but it's you know the just the, the way the band plays it, 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 it doesn't have that same effect as if it had maybe better production or maybe a, a better way of presenting the the music to it. It's hard to describe. You know, there's there's so much like when you think about a song like Nobody's Fool or Don't Don't. Um, don't know what you got till it's gone from Cinderella. There's 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 the piano. There's the atmospheric sounds behind it. Where House of Pain from Faster Pussycat is straight up just the band playing. There's not a lot extra to it. And so a song like that could have used a better producer and stuff like that. And it would have probably been a better song. Same thing goes with Don't you know Don't Close Your Eyes from Kicks. There's there's something about it that yeah it's a good song, but it's not one of those songs that are going to bring five million copies of an album you know what i'm saying or or keep the consistency of the popularity of the band going right exactly i mean these these are moments in time and if you look if you look at that album a lot of the songs were written by other people other than the band and you could tell like the producers were often saying you know your 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 product is not working so we're going to inject our own um writing into it so that you you're a essentially in a way a manufactured band and there was there was a fair amount of that happening and it always happens it's not it's not unique to this style of music by any means it's it's something that happens a lot of times especially with pop music oh absolutely i mean there there are some artists that just go into the studio they have nothing but they you know all right this is what we're going to do today and they've got you know 10,000 songwriters come through and they you know they they write a song together I mean, mm-hmm. what was it? A, uh, you know, th- there's a joke like some guy. There's a 
uh, like a popular song out today and you look at the list of songwriters, there's like 12 songwriters and the song is, is all electronic and, and vocals. And then you got a, you know, a song like Stairway to Heaven, two guys wrote it and it's, it's eight minutes long and it's like the best selling song of all time. You know? Oh yeah. So, and uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a meme of, of Freddie Mercury and Taylor Swift sitting next to each other. Uh, or not sitting next to each other, but like the images sitting next to each other, and uh, it's it's exactly what you're talking about. There's the list of of you know 40 producers and you know people that were involved in it, and then it's you know who wrote the the song by Freddie Mercury, Freddie Mercury. <laughs> exactly. So you know, so the, yeah, there's that that uh, aspect of it, which is really interesting. All right, so one band I wanted to talk about briefly before we move to another pretty important one in the genre um, was Cinderella. You, you're, I know you're a pretty big fan of them, um, you know, and, and Tom Kiefer in general. Uh, but they kind of started as a glam band, moved more towards blues rock, like we mentioned before. Uh, they, but they came in in 1986, so towards the end, at the same time as Poison, um, but. I think they recognized that you know there was there was a different direction they wanted to go and didn't stay in the glam genre for a tremendous amount of time. The the funny thing about any of these bands if you if you ask any of these bands that are categorized as glam metal, not one single band will say that they're a glam band. Oh yeah. Maybe Poison. Maybe Poison. But they're all going to sit there and say they're a hard rock band. None of them are going to say that they're metal. Um, I don't know what they're afraid of, but they all gonna say, "Yeah, we're just a, a rock and roll band. We're a hard rock band. You know, we just play blues, and we're just delusional." <laughs> exactly, and and that's really when it comes down to everything. Obviously, all of rock and roll is blues based. Okay, you know, when you go into progressives, that's when it kind of goes outside that that main genre, but. Down home rock and roll is blues based, and Cinderella is blues based. I mean, Poison is blues based. You know, they're all got that style. Some perfect it more than others. Some, some show it off more than others. And Cinderella definitely showed it off when when Long Cold Winter came out. That was a really cool hard rock blues album. You know, I, I, I'm a huge fan of Cinderella's. I mean, that first album is awesome. The second album, they have certain songs that are better, but as a collective whole, to me, the first album is better than the second album. The third album, it was good, but it wasn't great, you know. And then there was fourth album, which was kind of generic Cinderella, you know. But I love seeing them in concert. They're awesome. Yeah, I mean that 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 happens. I mean, a lot of times bands will have a, a slump somewhere in their career. It, for them, it was the third album, but uh, you know, Tom Kiefer went off on to have his own career afterwards. But uh, I mean, it took a, it took a while for Tom to have his career because he had to go through some crazy amount of surgeries uh, for his oh, throat yeah. because they told him he would never sing again. They told him he might never talk again. Um, and he and he still has to deal with it today. So he has to do certain things to keep his voice in order. But I got to see him. I don't know if it was uh, in twenty nineteen or twenty eighteen. Can't remember which one it was. It, it's so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and and he put on a hell of a show. I mean, he's he ninety five percent based on the Cinderella music. A uh, couple songs were his solo stuff, but. 
I mean, he still puts on a great show, and it might as well have been Cinderella up there. I mean, you can't tell when you're listening to it that it's not, you know, Jeff Labar and Eric Brittenham and, and Fred Curry on the on the instruments. You can tell Tom Kiefer singing and playing guitar. <laughs> yeah. Well, Tom has a pretty interesting story, and we, we'll probably touch on that sometime down the line. Um, but I want to talk about, uh, before we go back to this other band, uh, Warrant. Uh, Warrant was another one of those that, to me, is a lot like Poison. Um, you know, another band from the L.A. scene. And uh, they kind of came in, were more on the, the, the end of, like, the the softer side, like I said earlier. Pretty talented guys came out with a dirty, dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking rich in 1989. I mean, do you, what do you more have more to say about the Warren? The the fun, there's there's always a band for all these different genres, or and, and not even genres, but different categories of rock. So when you think about like classic rock, and you think about a band like Boston or a band like Foreigner, Foreigner was compared to to Sticks or or to um any of the other 70s rock bands, Bloister Cult, they, they, they all were in that time period. Foreigner gets labeled as a corporate rock band, that they weren't really uh, organically grown. Boston is, is similar to that. You know, they became this quote-unquote uh, corporate rock band. But they, to me, that, that's a bad, that's a misnomer on Boston's part. Not, uh, not on Boston's part, but a misnomer against them because they were far from being a corporate band to the fact that, you know, they didn't release an album for so many years because he was fighting the corporation. Uh, Tom Schultz speaking, uh, talking about specifically. Warrant has that same reputation when it comes to the glam metal scene. Their reputation was that they were not organically grown, that they were put together by the record label to be to, to, to make a hit album. Uh, I don't know how much of that is true. I doubt that most of that is true. But... They definitely were the, this band that, you know, shot out of nowhere, had a pretty decent first album, and then explode with their second album based off of one song that they didn't even want to write. Oh, yeah, Cherry Pie was huge, but, I mean, I I can't stand that song. <laughs> I And I understand why you don't like the song. You know, I, and oddly enough, that song, when I drove away this morning at 6.51 a.m. to go to work, I turn on my car, turn the radio on, and the first song that plays is Cherry Pie from Warren. <laughs> That's <laughs> and funny. I listen to it, and, you know, it's as basic as it gets. You know, the the lyrics are, are just trying to rhyme, you know, to, you know, this, to get this kind of funky melody that the, that the song has. And then, you know you have this really gang vocal chorus. It's as simple as it gets, and they literally wrote it in five minutes, and they said, here, record company, there you go. And a song that was written as a joke is their biggest song. And it's crazy to think about that, because the song after that, on that album, is to me their best song, and that's Uncle Tom's Cabin. That song is outstanding. That's, that's a song. That's a that is a really good song. Great story, and and it's just it's played really well. It's a it's a hard rocking song. On top of that, it, it blows off it blows away anything that's off the first album. You know, the first album was just was pop metal to me, but this this song, Uncle Tom Cabin, is just amazing. I love that song. 
I mean, there's there's always going to be a couple hits, you know, here or there that are that are listenable. It's just like I said before, like the majority of these are going to be on the softer side, um, and I don't always think that was necessarily the band's own choice. You know, a lot of times the studio was saying, "This is what's going to be successful." You don't have the clout to really make these these decisions. You're going to do what we want you to do if you want to have a record late or you know a record deal. So. I think that's kind of the case with with a few of these bands. Now, the next one that I want to talk about is is it's kind of a big deal because it's a it's an impact player on the downfall of this genre and that's that's Winger. Now, Winger was pretty popular within the MTV era. I mean, they they got a lot of airplay. Um there was the, you know a mixed reaction to to the, the the image of, of Winger because Kip was a, a what was he a ballet dancer or something like that before? Yeah, he was a ballet dancer. Uh, he's a very well accomplished person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he's and- a maestro. He's a he's not just some bullshit bass player. <laughs> you know, no, ex- exactly. I mean, and he's he's a pretty pretty good musician, and so. I mean, their popularity initially was was natural. It, it it didn't come about like just being forced or anything like that. It it was a natural thing. But by the early '90s, uh, one of the things that really kind of changed the perception of 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 glam metal was Beavis and Butthead. Beavis and Butthead was was you know this this cartoon that was you know filthy and and. Uh, more grungy in in its nature, and they're sh- showing music videos and commenting on them and making fun, and it became a pretty big staple for the channel. And one of the jokes that was incorporated into the show was this kid wearing a winger shirt and then making fun of him all the time. Yeah, because they, they had and, they had an ACDC and what was the other band um, that was on their shirts? Uh, I I don't remember. Yeah, it's, but yeah, the winger kid was funny because he was like the, the the short, fat, goofy kid. Yeah, so it, it didn't it didn't necessarily you know destroy their career or anything, but it didn't help. I mean, having having that that impact of something as popular as Beavis and Butthead, you know, making fun of you is is big. It, it's it's definitely tough to overcome, and not only that, then. If if you recall when Metallica released the Black album, and you know later on in 1992 they released the the making of the Black album, or, or actually it was called a Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica. So it was like the end of 1980, 1992 or 1993. Um, they released this video, and in the video you see them during the making of the album. Actually, it was on it was on. Um, if I'm not mistaken, the Nothing Else Matters video, they threw a dart at a picture of Winger on the wall. And, yeah, and, and Metallica was very anti um, any of those bands. Like I, I remember watching a, an interview with Rat with Stephen Piercy, and he he went up to I think it was Lars, and you know was was saying you know oh it's, it's you know it's cool to meet you guys, and the the attitude was was that they they wanted nothing to do with them. And he was like, well, I thought we were all just brothers in metal. But that wasn't the attitude with the, that genre. Like, they, they wanted nothing to do with the glam guys. Yeah, there's some glam guys I wouldn't want anything to do with either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah, Winger Winger had a tough tough time. I mean, they 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 also fell into that category um, of being having a reputation as being a corporate band. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. and you said that they, they they grew organically, but at the same time, you know, it's like how did how did a lot of these bands get together and and shoot to to the top so fast? You know, you wonder how this happens. I mean, was it luck that the guy, the record company guy, just walked into the club that day and saw them, or was it something that was you know a little bit more uh, sinister in the background? Nobody knows. Oh, I mean, that's fair enough. I, when I, and when I say organically, I mean that there is an aspect of it too, uh, too, of course, that the airplay given is given by the record company and the, and the TV station. So if a, if a band that that's amazing, doesn't get any airplay whatsoever, uh, makes it, that's, that's truly, truly organic. That's something beyond the, the scope. Like that band was always going to make it. But if, but if a band gets so much airplay, that you can't help but have those songs in your head, then that's that's the record company and the and the TV station making that decision for you mm-hmm. in a way. Right. So when I say organically, I mean it's 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 not like um, it's not like you know they they just all of a sudden popped up overnight. They were there and they did receive a significant amount of airplay, but at the same time, you know they had a fan base. They had people that were going to their shows. So it's not like the, it was faked and that there weren't fans. Right. No, I, I understand that. It, it, again, they they had their niche, and you can't take that away from them. The songs are not bad. The The musicians, all four of those guys are excellent musicians. I mean, you can't yeah. take that away from them to the point where, if I'm not mistaken, Kip won a Grammy for a classical album just a few years ago. I mean, oh really? Or if he didn't win it, he was definitely nominated for it, and that's that's outstanding. He is a a very accomplished musician, and if I'm not mistaken, Red Beach is the guitar player. Red Beach is in White Snake as well. Yeah, he is. You yeah. know, and I think Reb also helps out with Dokken from time to time. So there's there's you know Reb's very accomplished, and I can't remember uh, was it Rod Morgenstein? He's the drummer, isn't he? I mean, he's also got his big name in in, uh, in the circles of drumming. So this this is not some slouch band. So it just it just didn't appeal to the the more masculine crowd that was watching. I mean, Winger was aimed at women, like same same as Poison. Like a lot of the a lot of these these bands, that was their goal was you know to to hook up, you know, yeah. to to be prolific in that 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 category um but you know there there's more to it than than just that i mean obviously we've got a band like vixen vixen came out in in 1988 with their 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 first album and uh they're an all-female glam band so they were more just interested in the the genre of music i guess oh yeah i mean at the same time you got to think about it they're People are influenced by this. You know, you you hear mm-hmm. it on the radio. You want to play it too. You want to get involved. You want to be able to be rich and famous and, and be on MTV. And the 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 four girls in Vixen, you know, were able to to put themselves together and and actually have a legitimate rock band 
and and play some legitimately decent music, but it was it was definitely glam, you know, and and they didn't have to uh, pretend to be women; they were. Um, and that first album was good i mean they put out two solid albums back to back and they had they had some hits i mean to this day you can you can catch um their their big single off of a broke you know on the edge of a broken heart on on any of the the serious xm you know the the hair nation channel that's it's it's a good song i can't take that away from them all right so that kind of leads us into one of the 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 last few uh, glam bands that came out and they, they weren't glam for very long. Um, and they're honestly, their career wasn't tremendously long with their original run, but uh, they're pretty impactful uh, with two pretty stellar albums. And one that I think big fans like, but, but it wasn't a big hit and that's Skid Row in, in 1989. So on the very tail end of the eighties, they released their their debut album Skid Row, which was the most glam that they were. Um, to me, I'm I'm a big fan because this is more along the lines of where glam started in a way with a little bit harder edge. Even though they have a couple tracks that are you know a, a bit softer, they still have that harder edge that glam kind of started with. I think what gave them the glam that they that they they wanted to be part of that scene and what gave them that was Sebastian but when yes. when when Sebastian left or was asked to leave they went they reverted back to the harder edge i mean they did it with slaves to the grind and in the in the subhuman race and they played harder music but they didn't want they they just didn't want that Sebastian edge to it to be you know, for whatever reason, to get the girls in. I don't know. It, it seems weird to me. But yet, at the same time, they had a rough relationship with Sebastian and they went their separate ways. But that definitely, Sebastian is the, what brought that glam side of it. And remember, remember we talked about in the last episode, what was the formula? You needed to have a, a killer guitar player, you had to have a hair, and you had to have a good-looking singer. And Sebastian was that good-looking singer. You know, yeah, I mean, it, it, he he definitely brought that aspect to it. What's funny though is that the 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 songs were written before him, you know, so the music was there. The, mm-hmm. the music didn't didn't change by any means, um, but the vocals other did. than other than the vocals right. did. But the vocals did. So and and but, his his style of singing because I heard the demo from the uh, the original singer, and you could tell. The original singer just didn't have that quality, and and didn't have the ability to 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 give it that sensibility that you needed to make the song a hit. Oh, oh, for sure. I mean, Sebastian is an amazing singer. I mean, absolutely. I would love to see a a, a reunion between or the original Skid Row, but it's it's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but but you had other bands coming out at the same time uh, with similar sensibilities, but not necessarily in the glam scene. I mean, Guns N' Roses, you could say, had a little bit of a glam look. I mean, definitely Duff and Steven and, and even Axel at the beginning had a glam look. But the music was, was taking a harder edge. And then, I mean, starting in 1985 was when... The, the Seattle scene was starting and that's that that was the grunge scene which was a big impact on the fall 
of of where things were going. I mean, 1985, you had Green River uh, with their first release. You had the Melvins coming out, then Soundgarden, Mud Honey, Nirvana, Mother Love Bone, Allison Chains, all coming from Seattle. Allison Chains actually had an incarnation of their themselves before they went into their grunge sound where they were actually a glam band. So some of this was coming out of the glam scene and changes that were developing from just the shift in, in the economy, the shift in, and, you know, every, every 10 years seemed, you know, the society seems to change and people were shifting out of that, that excess that uh, glam kind of represented and was really represented in the movie the, the Decline of the Western Civilization Part 2 where people really saw the the excesses of what was going on in in like one defined scope and i think it made people realize you know this is this is not as cool as it maybe seems you know you have this thing that's going on in Seattle that no one knows about other than the people who live in Seattle right mm-hmm. everybody knows about what's going on in LA and, you know, they had the, the decline of the Western civilization part one, which I believe was what the punk years or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's correct. And then, you know, when, the, when part two comes out with the metal years, it, it goes into the different excesses. I mean, you see what happens to Chris Holmes and his drinking. You see Kiss, you know, laying on a bed with, with naked women all around him, you know. I mean that sounds pretty cool. That is really cool, but <laughs> you know, and then you and then you see some of the other bands that are really trying to make it and you know doing having to go through that whole pay to play type of thing. It is a tough thing for them to, to 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 a tough pill to swallow when you see it all right there in front of your face, you know. But at the bottom line, you know, Seattle was doing their own thing and they their music if you probably listen to the early stuff, it's not far off from what the glam metal scene is doing. It's just there's a different edge to it because it's a different lifestyle up there. See, you know, I, I don't want to take anything away from Seattle because the area up there, the Pacific Northwest, is a beautiful area, but it rains a lot in Seattle. And, you know, some people are just not happy <laughs> and it comes across True. in their music, you know, and at the same time, a band like Soundgarden has an influence, you know, coming from Black Sabbath, and but at the same time, they did a they did a Devo cover on one of their on, on uh, Bad Motorfinger, so, you know, uh, as one of the B sides on the singles that came out. So they had a scope of music that was pretty wide. So they it wasn't like they were just this doomy, you know, grunge metal band. Yeah, and, and a lot of these, when they were in their infancy, just like glam took time to form and really create a sound, um, a lot of these bands had to do the same. I mean, Nirvana, when they're, with their first releases, definitely didn't sound like what they did later on when you know they really hit their scope, like within In Utero. So like their their early development was was I mean it's the same kind of organic. Dev- development that happened with say Motley Crue we're starting on a harder edge and going more towards the commercial aspect of it um and I'm not saying that Nirvana went more commercial I'm just saying it took time to develop what the genre was exactly but now think about this okay you have Allison Chains who was doing something glammy in the in the mid to late 80s before they they 
they kind of started working with that dissonant sound that they have. But when you think about the, the evolution of Pearl Jam, then you kind of understand how things, they were part of that glam scene. It's just, you know, um, the, the original singer who passed away for green, uh, for, for mother love bone, uh, Andrew Wood, he was in a band called malfunction before that malfunction. If you look at the album cover that ca- that came out several years after Pearl Jam made it, they re-released that first album, that, that only album that malfunction has. He, Andrew is standing there. I think he's got a fur coat on and makeup in his face. Okay. Mm-hmm. He was glam. And if you listen to the first album or the only album really from, from Mother Love Bone, it's essentially a glammy, a glammy kind of hard rock album. It fits definitely into that scene. So they were that band, you know, but they broke up because Andrew died. And then Chris Cornell, who was in Soundgarden, and they had been established at this point, but they they had their own style. Soundgarden never really sounded like the rest of the bands around them. You know, they became friends with, you know, they were all friends. But, you know, so Chris gets Mike McCready together and Mike gets Stone. And then they bring their, you know, their buddy Matt Cameron to play drums. And then at the same time, Pearl Jam was working on their first album and they said, hey, we have this singer. He might be really good to do this one song. And all of a sudden, you know, the tribute album to Andrew Wood from Temple of the Dog is formed. And it's essentially a combination of Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. Three members from Pearl Jam, two members from Soundgarden. It's it's incredible. Actually, it was technically four members from Pearl Jam. But, you know... They came from the the early rumblings of the end of the glam scene and what Seattle picked up from it to turn into Pearl Jam. Yeah. So, and Pearl Jam, they got lumped into grunge. There was nothing grungy about Pearl Jam at all. They didn't have tuned down guitars. They didn't have, you know, highly distorted guitars. They didn't sound anything like Soundgarden. They weren't dissonant like, like, Alice in Chains, you know, it, it was, yeah. they were a, a good rock band. That's all I could say about it. I, I, I'm a big fan of Pearl Jam's, you know, they definitely changed over the years, but I don't take anything away from them as far as that's concerned. Okay. Oh. <laughs> it kind of threw me off. You took like a very defensive stance about, no, be, about because, the- because grunge has this aura about them. Uh-huh. You know, and Pearl Jam was lumped into that. You know, we think about Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Mud Honey, Screaming Trees. They're all so different. In Nirvana, they're, every single one of them are different. But there was there was an attitude shift, and I think that's yeah. why a lot of times they're they were lumped together because it was coming out of an era, and and it's just like what we're talking about with the early stages of, of glam. You're, you're throwing in a lot of bands into the glam category at that point because maybe that album sounds that way or something that they did at that time was was a little bit glammy, but they, but they don't necessarily fall into that category. But there was, there was definitely a look, like Pearl Jam looked a lot like a lot of the other bands, the way they dressed and the longer hair, you know, it wasn't poofy and they didn't spend 15 hours doing their makeup, 
you know, it, that there was a there was an attitude shift that that made them fit into that slot at the time. And yeah, I would say they're more a rock band now today than than ever really being a grunge band. But in their early formation, they did fit into the category of grunge. Yeah, they they fit into <clears throat> it because they lived there. You know, basically, it, basically. basically, you know, it's sort of like um, to me, grunge really was more of a fashion statement than it was a musical statement. It was an attitude and a, and a fashion. Right. You know, with the... Sh- and, and most... And just like Glam, all the bands that are slotted into the the, the uh, grunge category don't like being called grunge. Right. Absolutely. You know, and be, it, it, because to me, and even like today, you know, all the, all the bands are called hair metal. I prefer to lump them all into hair metal you know that whole scene because i don't personally like the term glam Mm -hmm. you know i use pop metal and i use hair metal personally and and many many of them probably don't you know like sebastian bach has has been having this argument with d snyder about you know hair d snyder's been in that show has had that radio show house of hair for like over 20 years it was just one of these things that eventually to identify this particular music away from everything else, how do we identify this? Well, you know, there's thrash metal. That's very distinctive. So now how do we lump in Motley Crue and Poison and Def Leppard? Well, it's hair metal. You know? But I think the reason we do this, where we, we define these genres, is, is so that when you're, when you're watching something or listening to something, and you say, I like this. What else is out there that's like this? You know, it makes it easy to define. It's like going into a library and looking for a book. And if everything was just on the shelf randomly, it'd be really hard to figure out what you're trying to find. Right. And that's where that's why grunge is so screwy. Because uh, someone who likes Screaming Trees is not necessarily going to like Soundgarden. Well, somebody that likes the Melvins is not necessarily going to like nirvana exactly so so but but that's the same like i said like with with poison and motley crew you may not like both and if you like motley crew you may definitely not like wasp so i mean there but there there's still these ties that bind all these bands right in a way and i think that's that's generally it now all these factors that we're talking about the influence of grunge the 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 changing of society, the, the the influence of, you know, a movie can't change everything in society, but can it, it can highlight the, the things that are going on and, and the mentality of saying, hey, you know, maybe maybe I'm kind of tired of this. Um, the influences of, of new bands coming in, like, you know, the, the you mentioned Metallica, so the thrash scene becoming more popular. Um, death metal was starting to arrive in in Florida, you've got uh, Guns N' Roses, you know, bringing back a harder rock edge. You, it, there's there's a lot of things that are coming all about at the same time. And as we mentioned, a lot of that first wave was disappearing. So the guys that really influenced and brought around this genre were were going away. So the 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 standard bearers had all kind of fallen by the wayside. So it wasn't a shock that in the early '90s. Glam started disappearing. No, it wasn't a shock. When you think about, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna 
go over something real quick. When you think about how many of these bands were here in that last three to four years, you know, from 87 to into the 90s. I mean, it was a crazy amount of bands. They had super groups like Bad English. And then you have bands like Badlands, uh, Extreme, Jackal, Mr. Big, Trickster. All these bands came out at the same time, you know, in the 87, 88, 89 era. I mean, the market was flooded with all these glam metal bands. And for for lack of a better term, Guns N' Roses was leading the charge because as much as they were having a harder edge, Sweet Child of Mine put Guns N' Roses over the top. And that first album is is amazing. It's not a glam album, but if you if you're gonna stick Hanoi Rocks in as as early glam, then Guns N' Roses technically fits into that same category because they sound just like Hanoi Rocks, you know. So yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, so they were part of that movement. They eventually moved away from it, like certain bands do, um, you know, because Guns N' Roses exploded. After 1987, it was just you know, Sweet Child of Mine got on MTV and it was it was over for everybody else, <laughs> basically, you know. But with the influx of all those bands, something had to give. And when Nirvana hit with, you know, Smells Like Teen Spirit, it was the anti-glam. I mean, they they were literally telling you to your face, this is the anti-glam anti-hair metal, anti-pop metal, whatever you want to call it. And they were, you know, looking down at their shoes. They were playing, you know, they had, they didn't necessarily have long hair. Like, you know, Kurt didn't have long hair. Dave Grohl did. Uh, you know, Novoselic didn't have very long hair either. So they were the anti- Yeah, but he wasn't clean shaven. Right, no. And, you know, I mean- yeah, they were the antithesis of... of you know, completely opposite of what glam was. And they purposely did that. And there was just an attitude of apathy too. Like we don't care. Mm-hmm. And, and that was something that I think people latched onto. There was a changing in society. Like, as we mentioned before, and the nineties, the nineties were a big change in general. I mean, you, in the eighties, you had, you know, big heroes that were were you know America, and and you know we're we're fighting for uh, you know our freedom and all this stuff, and then and then all of a sudden there was this this you know kind of shift towards like we don't we don't care about all that, we don't we want to we just want to live our lives, we don't want to be influenced by all this this you know junk that's going on like. And and I think that reflected in a lot of the popular, you know, subcultures. Like we've talked about wrestling a thousand times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you had a you had an era where Hulk Hogan was the biggest thing ever, and then all of a sudden you're you're going into the '90s, and and there's a shift where um, even Hulk Hogan went, d- you know, dark. You know, he went like changing his look from the red and yellow to black and white because 
people wanted something more real. They were dissatisfied with the the gist of things that were going on and didn't want these big rose-colored glasses, you know, shining bright colors everything everywhere, like the hair all poofy. They wanted the flat hair. They wanted the, the, the dark colors. They wanted the grungy attitude, and that's that's where it was coming from. I, I completely agree with you on, on all these sentiments. And it's, it's amazing that it was such a stark change. And it wasn't overnight, but it, it gradually, within, within a, a three to five year period, how this all changed. But when you think about the, the early 90s, I, I said at the beginning of the show that, you know, grunge wasn't necessarily the absolute factor that shot glam metal down and killed it. I personally think, in reality, glam metal killed glam metal. Oh, I I think all of the factors there, and you're you're 100 right. Because let's take a look at this real quick. I'm, I'm going to go over this ever so briefly, as as briefly as I can, and it's probably going to be a long winded statement. <laughs> <laughs> in 1991, okay, there were 14 metal albums that made the year end's top 200. Okay. And I only I only looked at the at the at the first one hundred, okay, fourteen metal albums. In nineteen ninety, there were fourteen metal albums. In nineteen eighty nine, there were eighteen. Okay, and you know, and so forth. In nineteen eighty eight, there were nineteen. In eighty seven, there was fourteen. These are metal albums, and by categorizing by metal albums, you know, for for a. A quick statement in 1991, we're we're talking about Queensrÿche, ACDC, Scorpions, Warrant, Extreme, Tesla, Poison, Van Halen, The Damn Yankees, Firehouse, Skid Row, Trickster, Metallica, Slaughter, Cinderella, Steelheart, Great White, John Bon Jovi, Solo, Guns N' Roses, and I'm even throwing in the Black Crows because they had a really big album with a big album that Shake Shake Your Money Maker, which was a hard rock blues album. Okay, four albums reached number one that were metal related: Skid Row, Van Halen, Metallica, and Guns N' Roses. Metallica having you know four weeks at number one, Van Halen three, Guns N' Roses two, and Skid Row one week. This is 1991. Hair metal or, or pop metal or glam metal is not dead at this point. But why I say it killed itself was because the the bands that were huge, Poison. And and Motley Crue, and and Whitesnake, they, it almost seems like they they literally shot their wad and could not come up with a good idea, and they just put out shit after that, and you know oh it doesn't matter we're Motley Crue oh it doesn't matter we're Poison, you know Poison had a band change uh, when when they got rid of CC Deville and they brought in Richie Kotzen. Well, I mean there were drug problems too. Oh yeah, obviously. I mean drug drugs help doesn't help you know but you know bon jovi you know did his solo album uh you know scorpions were having you know they were seemed like they were running out of ideas even though they were riding high off of winds of change but they would never regain anywhere close to that status you know well, i mean but going back to bon jovi too they did the they both did solo albums him and richie sambora right and both of them were successful and they also, I think they did that because they were reaching the end of their rope with the the glam 
aspect to their band. But when they came back, they 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 were no longer glam. No, they changed yeah. entirely. They, I mean, they, you know, to use that phrase that we we brought up with uh, in flames a while back, they they had to do the reroute to remain kind of thing, like change. Because they weren't happy with what they were doing before either. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, Kiss releases Revenge in 1992. And musically, it's very similar to, to the to the glam stuff that they were doing. But the, it was a harder edge, too. Definitely a harder edge to it. Well produced, because Bob Redger, Bob Ezrin is a good producer. But you can see... They it, went back to a leather look, too. Yeah, they went back to the leather look. And Gene Simmons found himself again. After all those years with the wig and the different colors and all that stuff, he finally found who he was. He became the demon again, but he was the demon without the makeup. And that mm-hmm. was a great look. I loved it. You know, and unfortunately, after that, they went different ways and they decided they wanted to get a reunion. But had that re- had had they done, if they had kept on that pace, because after that, again, they, you know, trying to keep the pulse, you know, the finger on the pulse, they wanted to go grunge. And Carnival of Souls is a quote unquote grungy album. And they got Toby Wright to, to produce it. You know, and it was again trying to follow trends. You know, they they started playing in in the the, the key of C. That's not Kiss. That's not Kiss. No, it's, it's. I listened to it one time, and that's all I ever need to listen to. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it, there's a couple of good songs on it. You know, but in reality, the album as a, as a whole is is terrible. So to me, with all the watered down stuff that, that they got going on. I mean, there's a million bands out there, you know. I mean, David Lee Roth was 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 glammy, you know. Uh White Lion, you know, they they were they were big and from 86 on and they even reached the end of their rope where they couldn't produce anything good anymore. Uh mm-hmm. you know, Def Leppard, you know, they rode high off of Hysteria. You know, that that album lasted them for 4 or 5 years. I mean, it literally charted on the top 200 three years in a row, different positions, but three years in a row, it was part of the best-selling albums uh, in, in in Billboard's charts. So that tells you. And in '88 was the was the height of their that popularity because it was the number three album of, of 1988. But it was the number 93 album in '87, and in '89 it was the number nine album. So it, it didn't drop that much. So that's crazy to think about that album lasting that long. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. so there was just, there was such an influx and it's exactly the same reason, you know, as much metal kill, glam metal kill glam metal, same way grunge kill grunge. But I, I don't blame the bands so much for grunge as the record companies, the record companies jumped all over grunge and they watered it down faster than they watered down glam metal. I mean, it was in and done in, in less than five years. Yeah, I mean, the 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 record companies are always going to dictate what, what exists out there. I mean, things have changed a bit in, in modern times where people are able to self-produce and they can put music on, on other uh, platforms that have become really popular and things can be dictated a bit by the by the actual fans out there um which is interesting it's a, it's a definite shift and i think record companies see that and, and it terrifies them 
um, which is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, for the for things to be able to develop organically is interesting. Um, the 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 music scene, you know, it's it's hard for the older guys to say, you know, like, you know, I see that it's it's hard for for young people coming up to to be established, and I get that. I mean, it really is, but, but that's going through the means that that uh, people have always done, and I think there's going to be there's going to have to be a massive amount of adapting to the modern society of technology to really be able to subsist in the music world now. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, it's such a different world right now that, you know, there, there has to be some sort of adaptability and, and record companies are still behind the eight ball on that. Yeah. They, they don't know what to do with it. <laughs> no, not at all. You know, and you know, when I say, you know, grunge, the record companies kill grunge, and I agree with you, record companies are the ones that dictate. But right now, like you said, it, it's such a different world now. Musicians are the ones that are dictating, like, you know, and it's record, if, if record companies don't adapt, they will die. And a lot of them have. I mean, some of them are are on on life support. And they, if they don't adapt, they're going to die. I mean, there's very few, like like Frontiers Records, they're out of Italy, I think. They don't give the artists any money at all. But they sit there and say, okay, we'll give you a record deal, but here's the deal. It's up to you to put out the record, or it's up to you to make the record, create it. You submit it to us, we'll do the rest as far as we'll, we'll press it, we'll print it, and we'll put it out there. Okay. Yeah. There's yeah. there's more of a an artist involvement in that capacity. But it's interesting. You can sit at your computer and and produce your own album now. Oh. And there are musicians that do it. Oh yeah. They don't need a, a big studio anymore because because technology is permitting them to do it at their desk. And it doesn't mean it's better. It doesn't mean that that you know there's not something to be said for having all the instruments there and and being in the the true environment where we know music to come from but at the same time there's there's a capacity for that to happen nowadays absolutely i mean definitely that is where stuff is headed and and headed has been that way for years now you know mm-hmm. i remember i mean so i left I left Miami in 2007, but I left my record store that I was working at in 1995. Okay, so we're talking, you know, 25 years ago. 25 years ago, they had DAT tapes. And at that point, you could take your DAT tape and you can send it somewhere. And and you could go from studio to studio to studio and, and, you know, or you could send the tape to somebody and, you know, it's digital and they can get their tapes. And eventually it became, you know, uh, a file that you can now send on your computer. And, you know, before all this high speed Internet, they're trying to send something via email or trying to send something via some sort of Internet interface. And it took forever, you know, but... Now it's it's a blink of an eye, you know. Hey, I need you to send me over the drum files. Here you go, boom. Oh yeah, you know. I mean, right now we're recording in two different places, and we're gonna bring the files together and and mix it together. Exactly. I mean, how how wild is that? <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> so so yeah, I mean, it's it's evolution, you know, and and 
everything evolves. The 80s glam scene evolved, you know, from the 70s glam scene, you know, and and the 90s grunge scene was was the the answer to we don't want this anymore kind of thing. But like I said, and not and not just glam metal, but that everything that came before it, oh. it was just a development that came from just wanting change. Exactly. You know, it's, it's, it's just, it's crazy to think, you know, how these times change. But like I said, grunge killed itself really quick, uh, as opposed to how glam metal was. And, and to this day, I mean, still is, we, we talk about it. We mentioned it briefly it exists again today because they renamed themselves to, you know, they're not glam metal. They're not, you know, they've, they've almost kind of adopted that hair thing. You know, you have to be in this category if you want to play, you know, rock on the range, you know, you can't be a certain type of band if you want to play rock on the range or all these types of United States festivals. Um, but it's cool because these festivals give an opportunity for people to hear the music that they either grew up on or that they have adopted as their own. You know, there are people out there that still love the eighties, whether it's new wave, whether it's, you know, uh, freestyle music or whether it's hair metal, pop metal, glam metal, whatever you want to call it. So one thing I wanted to talk about real quick, um, when we were to, to get towards, so we're getting towards the end of the show, glam metal, to me had its it, it its peak was 1988 and I'm gonna tell you something real quick we're going kind of back to the to Billboard albums there was like I said 19 metal albums that made the top 200 but here's the really cool thing about that 18 weeks in 1988 there was a metal album of some sort at number one between Van Halen's OU812, Def Leppard's Hysteria, and Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. Those three albums dominated 18 weeks of the album charts. Wow. And it they, they did it between June 25th and November 5th. It was like the second half of the year that they that they really dominated that. And and all, out of that time period I just mentioned, only two of those weeks were was there an album that was not metal oriented that made it number one? One was Tracy Chapman for one week and Steve Winwood for another week. Other than that, it's Van Halen, Def Leppard, or Guns N' Roses. So 88 was a, was a huge year for, for glam metal. And it what's really cool is even though it died in the 90s, I, I, I totally love the fact that it's resurgent now. Oh yeah, I mean bands like Steel Panther have come about that are paying tribute in their own way to, you know, the, it's it is making fun to a degree, but at the same time the the quality of music's there. And they're not the only one. There've been other bands that do the same thing. So I mean, there there is an interest in that that time period and I know bands like like Motley Crue uh, feel offended that they they think that their genre is being made fun of, but at the same time, like they're doing it because they loved it. Man, several years ago, my wife and I went to see a Guns N' Roses tribute show. the The singer literally could be Axel's cousin, 
or or brother or some sort of relative, you know, he's got the same red hair, same length, um, probably probably weighs about the same as Axel weighs now. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the band that played Guns N' Roses also played Motley Crue and played Poison. It was it was a night out of 80s metal, glam metal, right? My wife mm-hmm. loved that night. One of her favorite nights of, of going out to seeing a show. It was at the House of Blues here in Houston. It was awesome. We actually went to, to, to two of those Guns N' Roses tribute shows. But that first one was just real special. And just to see the crowd, most of the people were, you know, between your age and my age, and some older, some younger. But the, the big chunk was, you know, mid-30s, early 40s. You know, and then there was a bunch that were in their fifties, you know, like myself, and they had the, the crowd in the palm of their hands. It was awesome because one, they were very good musicians. Two, they sounded really good, and they put on a hell of a show. And it was like watching Crew. It was like watching Poison, and it was definitely like watching Guns N' Roses. And it was awesome. And I like those tribute bands. We've seen them. We've seen a few. You know, we saw we went to see Metallica. That was one hell of a night. You know, because oh yeah, because Fat Kirk was playing guitar that night. <laughs> and I say Fat. Well, we <laughs> the guy was a little well, a little chubbier than Kirk because Kirk's a thin rail. You know, but this guy looked like Kirk dropped out of nineteen you know nineteen eighty nine. Well, we also saw the Iron Maidens. Oh, the Iron Maidens. And that was pretty cool. That was very good. I love their 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 shtick. You know, they played. They're great musicians. Those girls. They're awesome, mm-hmm. you know. And I've seen other tribute bands, and they're just to me. If I'm a band that's being honored, it's an honor because that means if someone likes you enough to want to actually be you for one night on stage, and and there's someone who wants to pay to hear your music. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you this: when I went to see Steel Panther. Um, that was one of my favorite concerts I've ever been to. They they engaged the crowd so much. They played their own music. They played a couple covers. Um, but they they indulge in that attitude of what it was like to be in the glam era. And uh, the bands that were in the glam era don't do that anymore. So I don't see any problem with them going up and, and doing the, the thing that they do. You know, it's just fun. Exactly. So... I I loved it, and the music was great. So, uh, I want to check out a Steel Panther show whenever concerts come back again. Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. I'll go with you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have talked about the life and times of glam metal. Uh, we've we've spoken about a lot of bands out there. We've we've spoken about how grunge heavily influenced the decline of glam metal. Um, so we are at that point of the show where we've now need to talk about what our big four glam metal bands are all right i believe you went last week first so i'll go first this week okay sounds good to me all right so my number four it's it's kind of a joke but at the same time it you have to think of it in perspective of they they were a glam band and my number four is spinal tap wow i'm waiting i'm waiting (laughs) for your reaction on that one that is from left field. Absolutely left field. But think about it. For me, 
as as a kid not growing up in that time, so one of my first exposures to glam was Spinal Tap. Now, the, you the, know, the, the first exposure you had was that the, was that the, the the soundtrack to the album, or was it um, was it the album? No, it break? would be the movie. I'm sorry, the soundtrack to the movie. Um, so that, that's what you heard first. Because they, they also had, you know, at the height of, of all this glam stuff, they had that album Break the Wind, I think it was. Or Break, yeah, break Like that, the Wind. That came a bit later. But to me, I mean, the first thing I saw was the movie. Um, I actually, my mom showed it to me because, you know, I think she, she got my sense of humor. And, and that was just in line with all the stuff that I liked, like Naked Gun and and those kind of things. So I watched, I watched, this is Spinal Tap. And to me, that was, it, you know, it, it's a parody, but at the same time, it re, there's so many bands that have said, this is, this is us. Are they making fun of us? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, even several have gotten offended. <laughs> yeah. Even Judas Priest said that at one time, like in, in Rob Halford's book, he mentions, you know, they went to see Spinal Tap in theaters and they were like, man, this, this seems like us. <laughs> You know, and, and so I think that that's it, you know, and their music was was good. So uh, to me, they they were a glam band and they represented what glam was, even though they were they were poking fun at it. And so I can't deny that they I mean, they even appeared on uh, uh, Hearing Aid. Yeah, they did <laughs> in character the entire time. So for me. I would like to play some higher, but I have to put the legitimate bands a little higher. Um, but th- even the guys wrote their own music. That's what's incredible to me. Mm-hmm. So they 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 delved into glam entirely to play those roles. Well, well said. All right. So my number three is Skid Row. Um, even though they're at the very tail end of, of the glam scene, uh, for me, they were one of my favorite bands from that genre. Uh, I listened to the first two albums on a pretty regular basis, so I, I definitely have to put them up there. And Sebastian Bach is a fantastic singer. Um, his, unfortunately, his, his career afterwards wasn't quite as great. Um, I like some of his solo stuff, and... You know, he always entertains me with his antics, even though he comes off as a, a little crazy sometimes. But I, I, I love Skid Row. My wife hates Sebastian Bach. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. All right, go on. Uh, my number two is Wasp. Wasp is is one of those that dip their toes into glam. Uh, they had a little bit of the look. I mean, Chris Holmes appeared in Decline of the Western um, Civilization Part Two. I mean. So, so there, there's a, there's an overlap there with glam. Um, the first two albums to me are just absolutely solid. I like the stuff that, that comes afterwards. It's a little less glammy, but, but man, what a great, uh, start to their career. I, I, I listen to their music all the time. Even now I, I was, I was going over their first album yesterday and uh-huh. That's that's a near perfect album for me. It's so good. It is so good, so good. I mean, I I I put nine out of ten songs on my on my playlist. Yeah, and and a shout out to uh, to you know Alexi Lyo who just passed away. Uh, he was such a Wasp fan. His nickname actually came from Wasp. That was Wild Child. Um, he did, even did a couple covers of of Wasp songs. So be sure to check those out as well. Um, and then my number one 
it's it's the band to me like i said in the first episode that that just exemplifies what glam is um and it so not only do they have the music to to back that up but they have the image they're the ones that that really influenced the direction that glam would go and that's motley Crue. okay uh i i, I like your list it's it definitely threw me for a loop with the spinal tap a little surprising, <laughs> but I, I, I like the bands you chose because they they weren't necessarily glam, but yet they were they were part of the scene. You know, I yeah, I mean, my perspective's a little different because one, I wasn't there during the scene, and also you you know me, I'm I'm a little harder edged than than what glam was for the most part. So that's that's the direction that I'm going to go when I make these choices. Yeah, when when when. Wasps came out, and I I found out about them, and and then I heard about the controversy with the the first album, the first song that they had, um, Animal. Man, I wanted to get my hands on that so bad, and I eventually got the single, and it, I ended up getting it on on a, on a gold picture disc type of thing. It's just literally gold. It's not even gold vinyl. It's like it's like gold paper. And then they pressed the vinyl on top of it. It's kind of weird looking. I got to show you when you come over. But I was a huge fan of Wasp. I loved that first album. Last Command was on on my cassette deck forever, you know. And I I loved them all the way through till they just disappeared for a while. You know, when when the after the the um what was it the name of the album uh. Headless something, the Headless Children, I think it was. Headless Children. You know, yeah. After that album, they kind of disappeared for a bit, and I kind of lost touch with them. I guess you could say. But I, I, I was a big fan of Wasps. Um. Okay, so that gives me my big four glam metal bands, and mine are more traditional, um, but they're not necessarily the same bands you have. Actually, I don't have any of the same bands you have. Come to think of it. Oh wow. Okay. <clears throat> so. But like I said, more traditional. My number four band is White Snake. Uh, you know, when David Coverdale said that I'm going to go for it, he went for it, and he he dove headfirst into the into the glam metal scene, and and he made it. I mean, that album, you know, White Snake 1987 is huge. So more power to him. And he he was a legitimate singer beforehand. And the fact that he's a legitimate singer to this day just tells you it wasn't just a fad for him. It just it wasn't just, oh, I want to do this. Because the, the songs stand up to this day. And that's the cool part about it. Number three, Dokken. You know, as, as much as, as Don is, is a jackass from time to time and, and he's a complainer and a whiner, there's no denying that that you know, tooth and nail and under lock and key and back for the attack were, were, were the premier glam metal albums of that, of the time. I mean, it, those, those three albums, you know, you had the hair, you had the guitar player and you had, uh, the singer, which, you know, it's questionable, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, they were, they were great. You know, I, 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 I liked their music. I've never denied that. So number two, Cinderella. As we talked about earlier in the episode, I'm a huge fan of Cinderella's. So uh, those first two albums were awesome. The third album was good. It wasn't great. It was good. They they definitely went into a more funkier blues, almost like what Deep Purple did when they brought in Glenn Hughes and David Coverdale. 
they kind of did the same type of thing. There was some funk elements in, in that third album. But the first two, you know, especially Long Cold Winter, the second one, was a huge, heavy, blues-based, you know, hard rock, glam metal album. And number one, the guys, I couldn't tell if they were guys or girls, Poison. To me, Poison epitomizes the entire scene. I understand where Motley Crue fits in for you, but... I've always had an issue with Motley Crue being, you know, glammy. They, to me, they were only glammy for one year or for one period. <laughs> but, you know, Poison, they they were just, that was their, their shtick. They, they, they were glam and they succeeded at it. And they, they had that time period where they were, they were it, you know, especially when, when they had that single, Every Rose Has Its Thorn, it was, it was over. Every chick was on that. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. I mean, they they definitely are those guys. Like they they epitomize, especially where glam went and like the the prototype of what glam should be by the time it had fully materialized. Like by the time that that glam was defined as glam, Poison were the guys. Mm-hmm. All right, well, that brings us to the end of our two-parter, The Life and Death of Glam Metal. Remember, if you liked what you heard today, be sure to check us out on our social media and leave us a comment. Make sure to tune in to the next episode when we spark up another exciting metal debate. On behalf of Kenneth Dean and myself, stay safe, and remember, always turn it up to 11. See ya. See ya.